Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Good afternoon or good night, however and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the Take It Easy podcast. Happy Tuesday, everybody. It is April 13th, at least at the time of this recording. It may not be April 13th at the time you're listening, so I hope you are having an amazing, fantabulous day, however and whenever it is that you are tuning in here. Uh, Much appreciated if those downloads on the rest of these episodes on the podcast, even if you don't listen to them, while you listen, just go through the podcast and just start hitting download on some of those episodes Leave those five-star ratings and, of course, subscribe so that you can come back to the Take It Easy podcast. So today's show is going to be one of those days where we have about two very important stories to cover and then one that I was going to do no matter what, Uh, but we can fit it in here because what the original plan was was to come here and talk about why the Utah Jazz are not NBA Finals contenders and talk about the sale of the Minnesota Timberwolves and all that lovely jazz that comes out in sports. And we can save some of those topics, of course, for later on. But then another story from Minnesota ended up dominating the headlines, and that is the death of Dante Wright after a police officer in Minnesota. Well, it's not Minnesota. It's a different county. It's a suburb of Minnesota. uh, Shot him while he was fleeing from police, and they will... um, uh, after scre- if you've watched the video, after screaming, pulling out, after screaming, taser, 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 she shot Dante with her gun one time in the, about, I think like the chest area. It's hard to see on the video, and I, I haven't read exactly where it was, but uh, 20-year-old Dante was killed by the police in Minnesota, which has sparked two days of protests. And uh, something I didn't know about, it hadn't really crossed my consciousness until the Timberwolves canceled their, or I'm sorry, not the Timberwolves, the Twins canceled their game against the Red Sox, then the Timberwolves canceled 30 minutes later, and then hockey came marching up there at the very end when public pressure made it obvious that the Wild and the Stars were going to cancel their game. Hockey came marching in after the fact as the, uh, the follower on this stuff, but Baseball took the front and lead, which I guess was just a little bit ahead of the Timberwolves because that's where the protests were going on was outside of Target Field versus Target Center. And this is a quintessentially American story first. So let's first talk about Dante Wright, what happened, why this is like a quintessentially American story and why it pivots to both sides of the aisle and why there's a lack of leadership around this situation, um, both from a Minnesota state level, from a Minnesota police level, as well as a federal response. 
And so the first part is the context behind this and why this is a quintessentially American story and a quintessential, because this story with Dante Wright has a little bit of everything in it, where police officer shoots a black man and kills him because of a traffic stop that appeared to pretty much be just racial profiling. They racially profiled him. It was a new car. Uh, he had air fresheners in the back window, which was why they ended up pulling him over. Uh, they found out that he was still for looking for a warrant for outstanding charges, and they arrested Dante on the spot. Uh, when they were trying to arrest him, Dante f broke away from the police, tried to get back into his car, uh, when the police officer on the body cam footage screamed, taser, 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 and then shot Dante with her gun. Um, and this is, her response afterwards was, holy shit, I just shot him. That was her response to shooting Dante, a white woman, by the way, just for context. Uh, maybe it was obvious, but it is important to throw context in there. But uh, it, this is the difficult slippery slope that you're figuring out here because one, we're talking about a white woman shooting a black man. We're talking about an accidental shooting because yes, it seems very clear from the video she intended to pull out her taser and yet at the same time, and again, I don't want to, I want to acknowledge that this is a white dude from California talking. So there's obviously a little bit of perspective and I want to avoid the mansplaining or white splaining on this one. Uh, as a white dude from California, um, I just want to put that out there in the first place. Like, it seems clear that this was involuntary manslaughter and which she should be charged and tried and that there was no malicious intent to this murder. Um, both things can be true at the same time in this one. And again, this is a difficult line to cross because of the fact I am a white man talking about these issues. And it's always difficult when we talk about this because... Unfortunately, the only time these become nationally relevant conversations again, post the summer of George Floyd, which is now coming up on a year at this point because George Floyd was killed during Memorial Weekend of last year, is when one of these events happened, whether it's Tamir Rice, whether it's Sandra Bland, or in Sacramento, Stefan Clark was a huge one that uh, I remember watching it in high school and they were... Um, blockading the Sacramento Kings arena in protest and they did they closed off the arena to people trying to get into the game because it's a one-way in one-way out arena so there was no like second entrance to barricade or get people in or spread everyone out and I remember watching that on TV and then a year or two years later I end up being at protests in Sacramento with Stefan Clark's brother speaking at a Black Lives Matter protest and so it's an interesting one for me. Obviously, it doesn't resonate as much with everyone else because Stefan Clark was another one of those names that we just kind of fade to the background, whether it's Jacob Blake or whether it's George Floyd or Breonna Taylor. A lot of these fade to the background with time. Even the, the guy from Atlanta, which I feel like I should remember his name, Rayshon Brooks. That's right. Apologies for that. I just had a brain fart for a minute. Um, Rayshon Brooks was back in June after the George Floyd protests. And so I think I remember them burning down a Wendy's over that. That's one of the, you know, one of the, the interesting Twitter moments that I found from that. Anyways, this is sidetracking. What I want to talk about here is just that, again, white dude from California talking. Acknowledge I'm an ally. I'm not the person experiencing it. White people are the problem in this circumstance. With the 
like I said, involuntary manslaughter, which she should be charged and tried. The problem is not whether she should or not. The problem is that there is literally no way to prosecute under these circumstances. Um, the Derek Chauvin trial is already looking for, what, third-degree murder? And that is already going to be a hard case to get past and a hard case to convict. It's why they had to go to third degree instead of second or first degree murder was because it's so difficult to get a conviction. And so it's going to be interesting to see what happens with this lady. And if we're doing a, a perfect world, again, I have my own problems with the prison reform system. I'm not like she should be locked up for this. I have my own problems with the prison system, period. And I'm not going to be the person who sentences someone to death. But I also believe that the way around, the way to instigate short-term change outside of law is with the civil settlements. And the idea that if you pay out massive, massive sums of money out of the police budget for these deaths, all of a sudden you can start to instigate change because the police department can't afford to keep paying out ridiculously large settlements. So if instead of for example, $12 million, which I think was the number for George Floyd. I may be incorrect in my evaluation. It's either 12 or 27. Maybe one was, um, one was Rayshawn Brooks and maybe the other was George Floyd. I can't remember exactly what the number was. But if you're paying out $27 million or $12 million, if you can move that number up even more, then all of a sudden you are looking at reform via money is saying to make reform. And this is the thing we do all the time with short-term reform is that we talked about this with the Atlanta All-Star Game is that short-term pressure on corporations financially can lead to short-term gains. Like public pressure can lead to short-term gains like removing the All-Star Game and ultimately like what happened in Charlotte when the NBA pulled the All-Star Game and a lot of business, the NCAA pulled their business, they revoked the transgender bathroom bill. And maybe that'll work in Georgia. They're already looking at other such laws in Tennessee and Arkansas, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe even Florida, to be quite honest. But it is a, a, it's a case where if you put pressure on the system, in this case, via the civil settlements, and we make settlements even higher, well, police budgets are not going to want to pay out those gigantic those gigantic settlements are going to put a pressure on the system to not have such situations. And even in this case, where it seems very clear that there was no malicious intent, that she would, very clearly was looking to pull out a taser, it would be very strange if her reaction afterwards was, holy shit, I shot him. It would be really strange if she had done that and had totally intended to shoot him. Uh, it was pretty clear that she had intended to tase him, which is a whole nother conversation again about whether or not it would have been better to just let him go. You already have his information. You can go and arrest him after the fact. But that's another conversation about policing tactics that I don't want to have because, again, I have problems like with the prison system. I have problems with policing system that I think are like rampant and widespread. And if you're looking at an idealized society that can create change over decades and generations, this is the idealized version of the world I envision. Begins with police officers only policing the districts that they live in. Uh, and we can work on from there to quell some of the problems with police budgets, et cetera, et cetera. And for the prison system, I have my own problems with the idea 
of locking people up in such ways, especially for nonviolent offenses that are, you know, designed for people of, well, not white people to suffer over, well, not just non-white people, but also poor white people to suffer unfortunate consequences uh, and unfair policing and unfair unfair opportunities or unfair unfair jurisdiction in the court of law. That's what I was going for. Anyways, the point of this being, again, it was interesting. This is a quintessentially American thing, right? Like you have in, uh, involuntary manslaughter should be charged and tried. The idea that this is not a malicious intent on this killing, but obviously it is a killing. So should it be prosecuted? Absolutely. And we're we're different about these things now as a society. We're not in the 25 years to life camp for involuntary manslaughter. But at the same time, this is a difficult case and it should be tried because of the precedent that this and the George Floyd trial, which I've not been paying attention to because I'm just waiting to see what the verdict says. It would be strange if I like sat down and watched all of the trial like we did with OJ, which seemed to be kind of a bit of a mistake because it flamed race relations in the country and the media is setting this up like it's going to really instigate race relations and racism or reflame race relations in this country based on how this is going to be tried. It's going to be really interesting to watch that play out uh, however long it's going to be, but I'm just waiting for it to actually, you know, get the result and the verdict in before all of this progresses. So anyways, what was the point of this piece is to talk about Dante Wright, the case itself, the quintessentially American story behind it, uh, and also noting that from the response side, not a lot of response from the, the Minnesota police. I don't know exactly the, what was it, Brooklyn Center or Brooklyn County? Brooklyn Center County, I think is what they called it, but um, not a ton of response there. Minnesota governor, they've already established an impartial governing body to attack these issues instead of keeping it in the police system or whatever it may be, whatever it was before that created conflict of interest. They removed that. And then from the federal level, Joe Biden is choosing the road of moderate Democrat and politician who is saying that this is unacceptable and also we don't condone violence or looting, which that's code word. It's code word when you say that for which side you are siding with. So it's siding with both sides on this one, which is, you know, it's disheartening, but it's also kind of expected. Um, and then, of course, once again, sports are the talking point for these issues is that we're going to ask a lot of people in the NBA to make protests, but we're not going to ask that of the MLB or the NHL. Um, and even though in sports and in racism, more specifically, white people are the problem. In sports, you could argue the same thing, but white people are the ones who need to make the stand. And in the case of baseball and hockey, they're overwhelmingly white sports. Baseball is obviously more of a Latin sport than hockey. Hockey's close to like set over 70% white or 80% white. Um, but it's those sports that need to make making a stand. And it's the white people of the NBA that should be standing or kneeling or whatever it may be uh, with the people who are in that locker room and with the black community. J.J. Redick has, and Kyle Korver have both done great jobs talking about that eloquently because, again, sometimes you're just going to listen to J.J. If you are someone who needs an opinion shifted, sometimes you're just going to listen to J.J. Redick 
more than you're going to listen to, say, LeBron James. Just the messenger matters in a lot of these cases. So there's no like great way to transition on this one. It's always like strange transitions. So you just throw the music in and acknowledge, hey, we got a transition here to more lighthearted stuff. And uh, this is um, this is the story that I guess I wanted to talk about in the first place, which is around the other story going on in Minnesota, which is the sale of the Minnesota Timberwolves that Mark Lowe and A-Rod, I'm going to say Mark Lowe first because let's throw this guy a bone. He's the guy putting in most of the capital here. Let's throw the guy a bone a little bit here. So Mark Lowe and A-Rod are by, I hope I got his name right. If it's Mark Lower or something like that, um, that's going to be even worse for him. Um, because, yeah, Mark Lore. It is Mark Lore. <laughs> Mark Lore. I'm sorry, bro. Mark Lore. <laughs> I was trying to throw him some credit there, and I just called him the wrong name, which is just brutal oof that's a tough break for you but anyways he's in the e-commerce industry he got bought by walmart he ran walmart's online retail division for i think like the last five years or something but anyways my man's bought the minnesota Timberwolves, and he bought them for slightly over the market value forbes listed them at 1.4 billion sold the team for 1.5 billion. I'm pretty sure the Timberwolves are the least valuable NBA franchise. And Glenn Taylor was desperate to sell. And so Glenn Taylor is selling to Mark Lore and A-Rod and they are gonna move in in two years. So there's a transition phase where they're gonna buy the team and move in two years from now because Glenn Taylor wants to make sure this is perfect because he is really stressed about selling the team that he has owned since the 1990s. Glenn Taylor is Mr. Minnesota. He's really conservative, and he bought the Minnesota Star Tribune. He's bought the, I can't remember if it's the football team or the baseball team. He owns one of the two. Um, but Glenn Taylor is like Mr. Minnesota, and he is selling the Timberwolves because of his age, his finances, whatever it may be. He wanted to sell the Timberwolves. And Glenn Taylor has been one of the worst owners in the NBA over the past few years. And we've actually done an episode on this. If you go back to if you go back to February 25th, that is when we did our episode on what the hell happened to the Minnesota Timberwolves. And it's a really interesting story because of how strange their franchise has been run. And for the Sparknotes version of it. I was going to include a clip here, but there's not really a Sparknotes clip within 33 minutes of a podcast. And by the way, that was one of our more popular episodes. So thank you to the people who have been supporting this page. Um, for for the Sparknotes version of this Timberwolves story, is that the Minnesota Timberwolves were sold by Glenn Taylor or sold to Glenn Taylor back in the 1990s, and they've had a weird trial since then where they got Kevin Garnett one of their first draft picks Hall of Famer early on and when you get a Hall of Famer it automatically like this is the thing small markets strive for is to get one Hall of Famer and just keep riding the wave we talked about this on the radio show with the Orlando Magic the Orlando Magic drafted Dwight Howard in 2004 and they're still riding the wave of getting that superstar because at the trade deadline, or not at the trade deadline, back in 2012 in the offseason, they traded Dwight Howard for Nikola Vukovic and some other pieces that didn't ultimately make that much of a difference. 
They got Vukovic, and then when Vukovic, who is about to become the all-time leading scorer in Orlando, ends up coming up on his time to part, they trade him for two first-round picks that they hope will one day breed another superstar in Orlando. That they're hoping that the prospects of this trade will net them another star building block in Orlando so they can keep riding the wave of Dwight Howard. Minnesota had their Hall of Famer in Kevin Garnett. And they did not ride the wave well in Kevin Garnett. They had a lot of success with Kevin Garnett. But in 2000, Glenn Taylor and Joe Smith, Joe Smith was the former number one pick in 1995, had a secret agreement to circumvent the salary cap where Smith signed for the league minimum and Taylor outside of the Timberwolves was paying him, I think, seven years and seven, or five years and fifty million dollars or something like that. Taylor was paying him outside of the organization to circumvent the cap. NBA finds out about this agreement. The Timberwolves lost four first-round draft picks. They got four first-round draft picks taken away over this because it was setting a precedent. And David Stern is like an ironclad-fisted guy, and it was a way. Jesus, phrasing on that. Uh, David Stern was an iron-fisted leader, and so he ends up putting the hammer down to set the precedent on Minnesota, who ends up not having the capital to, re to keep sustainable winning a possibility. By 2007, they're ready to trade Kevin Garnett, but Kevin Garnett doesn't want to leave. Kevin Garnett ultimately gets persuaded to leave, and they traded Kevin Garnett for virtually nothing, which is exactly the problem that the Minnesota Timberwolves still find themselves in. Because how do you go 15 years with one playoff appearance in Minnesota? And that only playoff appearance was their one full season with a star player when they traded for Jimmy Butler from the, from the Chicago Bulls. That was their only year with a star player and Minnesota made the playoffs that year. Probably should have been like a three seed. They ended up being an eight seed because of Jimmy Butler injuries. But that one year they made the playoffs was because they had a star player. It's because the Kevin Garnett trade didn't net them anything. And they've been poorly run because Glenn Taylor is an overreaching owner at this point. And the Timberwolves have been one of the poorest run organizations since then, hence the fact that they have not made the playoffs since then. And uh, if you want the full deal details on the Kevin Garnett trade, um, looks like, so Garnett signs his extension. Uh, Al Jefferson and Theo Ratliff. And they got Gerald Green, Sebastian Telfair, and Ryan Gomes, along with a future first-round pick. And... They got back a first-round pick that they gave up in a Wally Zerbiak trade. So there is a, not a lot that they were working with in this trade. But they got Gerald Green, Sebastian Telfair, and uh, some first-round picks that didn't really turn into much. Uh, one of them, I think, did become Ricky Rubio after some moving around of picks. I think they got either Ricky Rubio or Johnny Flynn or something like that. But... Minnesota, hence the Ricky Rubio, Johnny Flynn story. Minnesota has been not very well run over the past, however, you know, decade long. They got Carl Anthony Towns. He's really good, but he doesn't really build winning. Uh, they traded Kevin Love, their Hall of Fame, potential Hall of Famer, for Andrew Wiggins. 
that one kind of worked out, but also didn't really work out, and they flipped him for D'Angelo Russell. The Timberwolves have just been kind of stuck in the mud for a long time. And Minnesota's most recent case that brought us to this was really, really strange, is that following the death of Flip Saunders, they had to fill their head coaching vacancy, and they'd recently hired Gerson Rosas as their new GM. He was coming from Houston. He was the new... GM of the Minnesota Timberwolves after Flip Saunders' death. I don't know if Flip Saunders was the GM and the coach, but Flip Saunders was the beloved guy by Minnesota, and Glenn Taylor loved him, and Glenn Taylor was pressuring the organization, and personally Gerson Rosas, to hire his son, Ryan Saunders, as the head coach. And Ryan Saunders gets hired as the coach against Gerson Rosas' wishes. He wants to hire someone named Chris Finch, who is an assistant with the Toronto Raptors. After two seasons, Saunders has the worst record of a head coach in the NBA. He gets canned. They hire Chris Finch without an interview, just straight up hire Chris Finch, full-time three-year contract, because it's clear that Gerson Rosas wanted to hire Finch from the beginning, but Glenn Taylor had his way and hired Ryan Saunders. And so now Chris Finch gets to hire Glenn Taylor, is on his way out, and he'd announced he had sold, wanted to sell the team back in June at the heart of the pandemic, just to recoup whatever he could in value. And that's the Spark Notes version of the Timberwolves story: is mediocrity, overreaching owner, uh, and a weird case where fire their coach, who was hired because his dad had died. Um, in part because his dad had died. Let's be journalistically responsible. In part because his dad had died. And they brought in uh, two seasons of Ryan Saunders. It was just pitiful garbage. They end up getting the number one pick, Anthony Edwards. They're in line to get the number one pick again this year. They still have Carl Anthony Towns. They still have D'Angelo Russell. Bad draft picks like Jarrett Culver. Josh Okoge has been all right. Um, Those are moves that have ended up hurting them over the long run. They gave up Lowry Markkinen and Zach Levine to land Jimmy Butler and then flip Jimmy Butler for Robert Covington, who they then flipped for uh, Malik Beasley and uh, a couple of other players. But they didn't get very much for Robert Covington, and they didn't get much else in the Jimmy Butler trade other than like Dario Saric and Jared Vanderbilt or something like that. Not very much in, the, in return for Jimmy Butler. Which, again, is the textbook way to end up being bad is by not getting a lot in return for your star players. And so Minnesota is now moving on from ownership. And the thing that keeps coming up here is relocation, relocation, relocation. By the terms of the deal, the Timberwolves are not allowed to relocate. Now, there was a very specific line in there that made it more concrete that these terms of this deal don't actually mean terms of the deal written in or one of the headlines coming out of this the contract obviously hasn't been written up but the Timberwolves or maybe it has been maybe it's been agreed to but the Timberwolves are not allowed to move the team and if they break lease with the target center which expires I believe in 2034 If they break lease with the target center, then the Minnesota Timberwolves have to pay $50 million to the city of Minnesota. And that was fascinating because 
making the price so high there. Usually, I think the Chargers had to pay like $20 million to break lease with the Qualcomm Stadium four years early to move to Los Angeles. It would be fascinating if they made that move because the reason you put that money at such a high value is a precursor for relocation. Everyone knows, and we talked about this on on Wednesday, or no, February 26th Timberwolves episode. Everyone knows the Timberwolves are next in line for a move. They have the oldest arena in the NBA without modifications. They have the second lowest attendance in the NBA. These are precursors for a move for a league that wants to go to Seattle and wants to go to Las Vegas. And everyone points to Seattle because everyone wants to see the Seattle Sonics back, but that will come from relocation. The Sonics will return after 20 years from relocation. For the Timberwolves, Vegas makes a lot of sense. The NBA can rewrite the rules of this contract and move the team to Vegas by, say, 2027. They'll give them time to work out a new deal in Minnesota. Minnesota taxpayers will not um, vote on a deal that will allow them to keep their team most likely. Um, It'll be the state will not publicly fund a stadium. There will be very few publicly funded stadiums anymore. I expect it will be a resounding failure and the Minnesota Timberwolves will ultimately move. And it'll be similar to what the Sonics did and they'll rip out the heart of the team and they'll move to Las Vegas and probably rebrand as the Vegas Stars or whatever it might end up being so that now you have a WNBA team, an NHL team, an NFL team, and an NBA team in Vegas. Sooner or later, baseball will move out there. But it seems too easy and too much in the works to already like to not have this happen like minnesota is their days are numbered and this was going to be true no matter what glenn taylor's writing in that you cannot move the team well this is not really plausible because the team is bound to whatever the lease is, but you can always just move the team if the NBA's will is there. And it, again, it depends on what ownership of the league wants. Do they want the timber? Do they want to bail on the Minnesota market? This is the difficult question. And possibly this, this paves the way for when the league expands to 32, putting a team in Seattle and putting a team in Minnesota, but they can move the Timberwolves to Vegas. And in that case, they will get a new state-of-the-art arena, or they'll just move into the T-Mobile Center. Again, Vegas has no state income tax and a ridiculous amount of gambling money. So they they just built a stadium and said, anyone want to come play here? They built a stadium just out of, like, just we're going to build a stadium and it's going to house UFC and boxing fights. Any team want to come here? We got this stadium available. And uh, ultimately, the NHL expanded there before everyone else. And people came after that. So the Timberwolves are in a position where they are writing the terms for a potential move. And the Minnesota Timberwolves and Glenn Taylor are absolving themselves from backlash as it stands. I don't know if the team is going to move. I don't know if they get a new stadium. I don't know exactly what it's going to be. But this is textbook relocation situation. The Timberwolves are the worst 
NBA media market other than like Charlotte or Denver, like they are small of small markets and they haven't had success in a long time. It is the textbook case, especially as the team is bad now. They may get good, but if they don't, if Anthony Edwards and D'Angelo Russell and Carl Anthony Towns aren't the answer and they stay at the top of the lottery, Gerson Rosas is going to get fired and the team is going to be making the steps towards relocation within the next six years. And it's probably why Glenn Taylor waited so long to transition powers because he's really nervous about this. His reputation, and to be honest, he really does probably want the Timberwolves to be in Minnesota. He's owned the team for 30 years. He's been adamant he's not going to move the team, but it also takes away a lot of his leverage in negotiating a new stadium deal. And so this is the difficult thing that Rosas and Lore, and I guess A-Rod, if you want to think A-Rod is in this one too, but the thing Mark Lore is looking at is what is our ability to keep the Timberwolves in Minnesota with a stadium, and would that be a viable option for the NBA? Because the NBA ultimately is pulling the strings on a lot of this stuff. With the Sonics thing, people don't realize just... It was one of the blights on David Stern's career because David Stern was aggressively trying to get the Sonics to Oklahoma City. And he was even sabotaging the city of Seattle's plans from an NBA standpoint in bad faith negotiations. So the league is going to have to put pressure based on the will of the ownership to make such a move happen in Minnesota. Now, it doesn't look like the pressure is there now, but it's more of right now a where there's smoke, there's fire situation because we've been talking about this for about a couple of years. We did a podcast from the future back in 2019 about most likely teams to relocate. Like second on that list was the Timberwolves. Like it is like the Tampa Bay Rays and the Minnesota Timberwolves are like, yeah, most quintessential sports teams ready to relocate. Now that the Chargers and the Raiders and the Rams relocated in the NFL, the NBA hasn't had a relocation in a long time, not since the Sonics was kind of a, a dark spot on the league, but they've also used the Sonics leverage to get new stadiums in Sacramento, to get taxpayer-funded stadium in Sacramento, to get uh, Milwaukee a new stadium in downtown, even though the Bradley Center wasn't really that old. It was old by NBA standards. Uh, they used it to get Brooklyn a new one. If you want to count New Jersey to Brooklyn as a relocation, that's technically one of them that's been a relocation. And Sacramento, again, I really wish you could see that 30 for 30 on the Golden One Center and the deal that was made to get Sacramento, that stadium, because it's really crazy. They had relocated to Anaheim and they had relocated to Seattle. Like it was done, about to be signed before they uh, pressured to keep the team there, which Sacramento is a textbook case for what Minnesota is following right now. Lowest media market in the league, oldest stadium, not really a will to get a deal done in a state that it leans Democratic and or leans Democrat. It's a blue state that doesn't pay out taxpayer dollars, which by the way, not paying taxpayer dollars for a stadium is becoming a bipartisan issue. Uh, it's not it's really the fans and the people of the city that end up getting it because some people push the ballot measures through. But taxpayer money for stadiums is kind of becoming a bipartisan issue. Um, and so this is the interesting place that Minnesota finds themselves in is new ownership, move lingering in the background, 
how is that all going to play out as this season keeps going along? And to be honest, Minnesota, you're probably... I mean, what are the odds that a lot of NBA teams relocate? The Kings were about to relocate. The Bucks were about to relocate. Like, relocation happens more often or less often than we realize, at least in the 21st century, where there's been, what, two NBA relocations. There's usually, like, one a decade. But the Timberwolves kind of feel like that one. And it was that way before the sale of the team. The sale of the team just gives us a little bit of a timeline for when new ownership can step in look to pursue a stadium deal and ultimately move the team before the 2027 season. So like within six years, if it's two years of a transition, four or five years of working with the city, yeah, by 2027, they could move out to Vegas um, or Seattle. But I, I, I expect Seattle is going to be more of an expansion team around 2030 in the NBA. But this is the thing with these processes. They take slow. They are drawn out very, very slowly. And in the case of the Minnesota Timberwolves, this one's going to be even slower because that's the way Glenn Taylor wants it to be, is how can we delay time, put a product on the floor, win, and convince the city to build a new stadium? Or how can Mark Lore do that? And maybe he'll be better because he's a more hands-off owner. I mean, maybe A-Rod will also be a hands-off owner. Maybe they'll be really good at their jobs. But maybe they'll be good leaders. That's the other part, too, because they're essentially leading a $1.5 billion corporation that traffics in the emotions business. So maybe they'll be better leaders, too. But it's going to be interesting to watch it play out from not just the A-Rod standpoint, but Mark Lore and how they're going to move the team uh, what their plans are for the future of the team, because again, oldest stadium, second lowest attendance, it is textbook. League wants to expand to multiple cities. It is textbook for a relocation situation. Relocation situation, love that little rhyme, a relocation situation. And uh, that's where Minnesota kind of finds themselves at this point in the uh, process of getting a stadium deal in place. Uh, and getting a sale of a team in place that was announced on Saturday to Mark Lowe, as I called him right off the bat, but it's actually Mark Lore. Again, man's not going to get a lot of credit there, but he is worth, whatever, $3 billion because he sold Jet.com to Amazon or to Walmart and runs Walmart's e-commerce division. So maybe he can run a Timberwolves team with a more hands-off approach than irrelevant and bad owner Glenn Taylor. So Julian Edelman has retired. Congrats, Julian. It kinda, I made the joke that we kind of knew that because Belichick was ready to cut him a while ago. And by the way, shout out to the Patriots for that strategy. Having Julian fail a physical to void his contract, guarantees go down, and it's a salary cap circumvention by having Julian Edelman, air quote, fail a physical in order to circumvent the salary cap, set up a, min a league minimum salary, and then for Julian to retire. It is a great little circumventing of the cap that the Patriots did, instead of just outright cutting Julian Edelman, which they were about to do. Um, I watched that Foxborough Forever thing that Edelman put out, which, you know, not a Hall of Famer, but he is a beloved character. That is one of the big parts about Julian Edelman and his injury last year he talked about his kind of the, the wheels falling off moment for him and so that's the why I mean as much as I joked that like he's getting ready to sign with the Buccaneers like it feels like he's pretty retired because 
he has been through the pain of that injury and it's probably going to be making Julian Edelman an ineffective version of himself for however long it might be. But Julian Edelman and this Hall of Fame thing is, again, it's something that we do a lot where we try to put people who have connected emotionally into the Hall of Fame. And Julian Edelman is one of these textbook cases where the thing we do with people who create memories in the Hall of... We put them in the Hall of Fame conversation and elevate their statistics to justify our emotional belief in their entry. Look at this from the Golden State Warriors standpoint. They say the Golden State Warriors had five Hall of Famers. Well, they have five Hall of Famers because we're putting Andre Iguodala in with two All-Star games. We're putting Draymond Green in the Hall of Fame despite the fact he averages like nine points a game and made two All-Star games. Klay Thompson even is going to have a tough time to make the Hall of Fame, although I think he'll ultimately get in. Like, there's not five Hall of Famers. There is Steph Curry, and there's a bunch of other dudes on those Warriors teams. Great all-star caliber players, but not Hall of Famers. And so, we do this in football a lot, and Julian Edelman's getting it right now. Julian Edelman, hell nah, he ain't a Hall of Famer. Because Tyreek Hill has more touchdowns in three seasons than Julian Edelman had in his whole career. And I understand Edelman is a slot receiver. A lot of his game is not touchdowns, it's about yards. And Julian Edelman, for as great as he's been, he's second all-time in the playoffs in yards. Hell no, he ain't a Hall of Famer. It's the same thing people do with Matt Ryan. Matt Ryan's going to get close. Again, I think the next few years are going to determine Matt Ryan's Hall of Fame candidacy because right now he's like 10th in passing yards all time and somewhere around there in touchdowns. I haven't seen where he is in touchdowns, but he's like 10th all time in passing yards. And people do it with Eli Manning because of the Super Bowls, but Eli Manning is like Carson Palmer, but like if Carson Palmer hadn't gone down those couple of years. He's Carson Palmer with a Super Bowl, which again... He won the Super Bowl MVPs, but those are just kind of things we give out because they just someone has to win it. It's why Julian Edelman has a Super Bowl MVP. Those really should not count towards your legacy as being a Super Bowl MVP because, again, the award is kind of stupid. We're very dumb about how we give out the Super Bowl MVP award. Like saying Eli Manning was the MVP of both of those giant Super Bowls is kind of an indictment to Eli Manning. Like saying Nick Foles was the MVP of that Super Bowl. Yes, he was the MVP of that game, but that is a damn shame that Nick Foles is getting that. Like Nick Foles was the best player on the Philadelphia Eagles and he didn't have the greatest offensive line ever in a top five defense. But... This is the silly, trivial conversation that I wasn't planning to traffic in, but some of y'all are some dumbass MFers for thinking that Julian Edelman's in the Hall of Fame. Matt Ryan's going to get closer. And by the way, I do the same thing with Phillip Rivers. I say, hey, five, top five all-time in yards, top five all-time in touchdowns. Phillip Rivers absolutely needs to get into the Hall of Fame. And he probably will, not on the first ballot, but he probably will get into the Hall of Fame. Again, Philip Rivers is my childhood idol, and Philip Rivers has an emotional connection for me, and so Philip Rivers means that much more to myself. And this is the same thing that we are all trafficking in in the emotions business of sports. 
is that these emotional connections that people have made to Julian Edelman, that Julian Edelman's this undrafted player and that he's retired and this is how his magical career comes to an end with postseason moments and Super Bowl victories and all of that stuff. We're trying to put more people in the Hall of Fame than there were on those Patriots teams. And Julian Edelman's a textbook case of that because he caught passes from Tom Brady for like 10 seasons. And that's kind of a big thing for us because we kept watching Julian Edelman succeed. But Julian Edelman is not a Hall of Famer. Postseason statistics aside, and by the way, second all-time in yards, why do you think that is? That's an accumulation stat. That's not necessarily a Julian Edelman is this unbelievable player stat. That's an accumulation stat because I'm guessing he probably played like 20 more playoff games than the next closest person, which I think was Terrell Owens was number one. Like, he probably played like 20 more playoff games than Terrell Owens. And so it's an accumulation stat for Julian Edelman. And the Super Bowl MVP obviously helps because they couldn't give it to anyone on the defense, even though they allowed three points. No one had the flashy stat line that would vent that would vindicate giving a Super Bowl MVP to a defensive player like Von Miller or, for some reason, Malcolm Smith. So there's not that. There's not the Julian Edelman is unbelievable because of look at all these amazing statistics he has. No, he's like an average wide receiver. And I love the joke that our boy Canadian Cutler threw out that it's setting the stage for Tyler Boyd to end up being a Hall of Famer in 2035 if Julian Edelman ends up making the Hall of Fame. It's the same thing we do with Matt Ryan. It's the same thing we do with Eli Manning. To an extent, it's the same thing we do with Cam Newton, although Cam Newton has more of a case than some of these guys, uh, specifically Julian Edelman. Um, Cam Newton probably won't get into the Hall of Fame, but again, for him and Matt Ryan, their careers aren't technically over yet. All Matt Ryan can do now is stat accumulation to the point where, like with Frank Gore, you just can't ignore that he's going to get into the Hall of Fame. Matt Ryan's kind of the same thing, where he might get to sixth or fifth all-time in yards and touchdowns, which I think he's going to pass someone next year really easily in the touchdown category. Like, he could get way up there in the touchdown category, but the MVP is going to help, but it just has to get to a point where we just can't deny that Matt Ryan is an MV is a Hall of Famer. Same way some people deny Phillip Rivers is a Hall of Famer, and if that's the bar we're working with, then I don't see any chance Matt Ryan's going to get into the Hall of Fame because of what Phillip Rivers' numbers look like across 17 seasons. It's going to be tough to justify not putting him in and then putting Matt Ryan in. Again, it's a cliche Hall of Fame conversation, but we just got to acknowledge that these people... With emotional connections, we elevate their ability. We do it with Eli Manning. We do it with Matt Ryan. We do it with Draymond Green and Clay Thompson and Andre Iguodala because they were on these champion Warriors dynasties. And we feel like there's got to be like three or four Hall of Famers on this strength and numbers team. In, in reality, there's like two Hall of Famers. Maybe one, but probably two. Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. That's it. That's the list. If Draymond Green gets in, good for Draymond Green. But... We do it with Matt Ryan, Eli Manning, we do it with the Warriors, and we're doing it with Julian Edelman. It's putting way too many people into the Hall of Fame, and it's this interesting dynamic that gets created. That Again, it's a cliche sports radio conversation, but let's not pretend like Julian Edelman is a Hall of Fame wide receiver. Let's just not do that. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping into the Take It Easy podcast. 
episodes every single day, Monday through Friday, as well as Wired Up on Sundays. Remember, subscribe, rate, review, download some episodes. Again, if you're just listening, if you're going to listen to another episode, just hit download on all those episodes going down the list. The, the downloads are the biggest things for us, especially in a dry time in the sports landscape. So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. And as always, take it easy. And we'll talk to you again tomorrow. Mark Lore. Lore. He's Mark Lore, not low, Mark Lore. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.